As we continue our time together, let's turn to John chapter 7. So we will finish this chapter this morning. I will read to you verses 25 through the end of the chapter. Please listen as is appropriate for the Word of God. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. Yet no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? None of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? 
But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So read the words of the living God. So yesterday after softball and my nap and studying for this morning, I turned on uh, some baseball. I'm from St. Louis, as you know, most of you know, and uh, I was watching the Cardinals play the, the Cubs, and you're supposed to say boo, hiss when you hear the word Cubs. That's, that's what people do. And uh, the Cardinals were winning 5-1 to one in the fifth inning, and this is going to be a great afternoon. Anytime we beat the Cubs, it's a great afternoon. And then the Cubs get bases loaded, but there's two outs, not to worry, and this hitter gets up who doesn't hit very well. He's a backup player. In fact, I'd never heard of him before. Wasn't really anybody filling in and catcher. And the first pitch he gets, he sends it all the way back to St. Louis from Chicago. I mean, he hit it a long, long ways. Grand slam, now it's five to five. And as a Cardinals fan, my heart just went, what kind of pitch was that? Throwing it right down the middle to this no good hitter. You know, I'm just on and on and on. And the announcers were from St. Louis, and they were agreeing with me. <laughs> but then I flipped over to hear the Chicago announcers. Guess what? They had a different perspective. Oh, this guy's got great potential, and he took that bad pitch and just crushed it, and how great a player it was. It was, it was not a, a, a right down the middle pitch. It was way on the inside corner. And how did he turn on that the way he did? Very different, right? Different perspective. And the thought occurred to me, and I had this passage in mind, isn't that how so much of life is? Everybody's got an opinion about everything, and we rarely have the same opinion about things. Think about what happened just this past week in our culture, right? A a man who's in the role in our nation as the attorney general shares his perspective on this uh, thing you may have heard of called the Mueller Report. And half the country says, finally, an attorney general who's interpreting the law accurately and cares about truth and and righteousness and the law, and the other half of the country says, we got to impeach him along with the president and get them all out of there because it's all a sham. How do so many people observe the same thing, read the same report, hear the same testimony from this man, and come to diametrically opposed conclusions about what's going on. We all come to everything with our biases, our presuppositions, our past history, our perspectives, our desires, and so often we see what we want to see and we interpret things the way we want them to happen. Uh, That's just kind of human nature. And when you get a group of people together, it's very hard to come to the same perspective on things. And in our culture... Politically, of course, this, is, uh, this has always been the case, but right now it seems to be ratcheted up to a uh, fever pitch. Well, it's no different in the story that we're reading about right now in John. Everybody had an opinion, and they were diverse opinions, and people were bringing their bias, their history, their preferences 
to their interpretation of what Jesus was saying and doing and who he was. So we see at the beginning of the passage here, some are saying, hey, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? And look, there he is talking publicly, but the Pharisees aren't laying a hand on him. Do you remember from last week, Jesus said to the group, you all pretend to be law keepers, you pretend to care about the law of Moses, and yet you're trying to kill me? Do you remember their response? Who's trying to kill you? You're, you're demon-possessed. You're crazy. Nobody's trying to kill you. Obviously, everybody knew it. It wasn't a secret. Yes, they wanted to take him out. And the, and the Jewish people are looking at Jesus now saying, look, there he is. He's talking openly in the temple. He's preaching and teaching. And the Pharisees are doing nothing about it. Hmm. Why? The answer is in verse 26. Uh, the New American Standard, which I'm reading, uh, doesn't translate this verse. Well, the way they translate it is a little bit confusing. What, what literally it says in the Greek here is, perhaps the authorities have truly come to see that he's the Messiah. See, what the people are doing is saying, maybe the reason they're not going to kill him right now, maybe the reason they're letting him talk is they've been persuaded that he's the Christ. So immediately some others jump in and say, no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. We know where this guy's from. We know where he's from. He can't be the Messiah because when Messiah comes, he's going to suddenly show up and nobody's going to know where he came from. So we've got people observing Jesus and they're drawing conclusions. Hmm, maybe at least the Pharisees think he's the Messiah because they're letting him talk. Other people say, no, 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 no. See, we, we, we know this is true, that people aren't going to be familiar with, his, with the Messiah's uh, place of origin. The scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture doesn't say when Messiah comes, no one's going to know where he came from. Some teacher or teachers along the way started teaching God's people that when Messiah shows up, he's just going to pop out of nowhere and, and you're not going to be able to trace his, his uh, history. See what happened there? Somebody teaches falsehood, gets a whole lot of people to follow, and now they're interpreting the, the, the circumstances through this false teaching. Ever heard of that happening before? So now we've got people judging based on what they see and what they think and what they observe in the response of others. We've got people throwing out bad theology here, wrong-headed theology from this. Jesus responds to them, by the way, and cuts straight to the heart of it. He says, you think you've got me figured out. You know where I'm from. You know all this about me. You really don't know anything about me because you don't know the one who sent me. Now, I'm not going to dwell on that because we've covered this in, in previous uh, sections, but just to remind you, that's a hard saying by our Lord to these Jewish people. He just said, I'm from God, and you, the people of God, you don't know God. I know him because he sent me, but you all don't know him. That's what he said. The Pharisees hear about this, and they want this man arrested. In fact, some of the people are starting to say, maybe this is the Messiah. Based on what? The signs that he's done. Remember back to the feeding of the thousands? Remember when Jesus took a few loaves and fishes and he fed some 15 or 20,000 people with that? They liked that. They liked that a lot. And they start reasoning through and thinking, hmm, if a guy could do that kind of miracle, maybe he is the Messiah. What's their 
purpose? What's their, their grid through which they're analyzing whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? What he does for them. He meets their needs. He provides something they want. Oh, he might be the Messiah. You can live your best life now. If you come to the Jesus I preach, you can be rich and wealthy and free of disease. Ever heard anybody preach that kind of stuff? No? Excellent. <laughs> You're avoiding the right people then. But because he filled their bellies, they think, we like this guy. We might think he really is the Messiah. The Pharisees start hearing this and say, we've got to shut this man up because people are starting to believe in him. Then after he, uh, he makes his appeal to them, which we'll come back to in a moment, people hear this, the, out of you, out of your innermost being will come rivers of water, and, and some of the people say, this has to be somebody. This has to be somebody special. Who talks like this? He, he's got to be at least the prophet who is coming. And others say, no, he's not just the prophet. He is Messiah. And now the Pharisees say, shut that man down, arrest him now. So they send out their police force, and their police force come back to them without Jesus. And the Pharisees say, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you bring him? And they say, you don't understand. Nobody talks like this guy. And the Pharisees just shake their head. Are you kidding me? Do you all, have you been persuaded by this heretic? Have all of you been deceived and duped by this guy? We know where he's from. He's from Galilee. No, Scripture says that the prophet or the Messiah comes from Galilee. Nicodemus, remember Nick? Nick, we met Nick in chapter 3. He was a Pharisee. He slipped out at night and said, hey, Jesus. Jesus, we, we figured out some things about you. you. You're obviously from God. Look at all these things you're doing. And, and Jesus has that conversation with him. And we don't know what, what Nicodemus really thought at that point. We're not told whether he truly came to, to believe or not. But here he shows up and he says to his Pharisees, look, it's not our practice to go arrest someone without hearing them out, giving them a chance to defend themselves, right? That's not what we do. And what do the Pharisees say in response? Oh, I see. You must be from Galilee too. That's why you're defending this Galilean. Look at the scriptures. No prophet, no Messiah comes from Galilee. It comes from the city of David. Now, obviously, had they done their research, they would have known that Jesus was from the city of David, from Bethlehem, in fact. So all these different responses based on bias and prejudice and circumstances and their own interpretations and bad teaching and what they want to be true and how it will benefit them if they believe this. It goes on in our day, it goes on, the things that you believe, things that I believe, none of us are as objective and unbiased as we would like to think. That's just the truth. We hear what we want to hear, we read things into things, we hear, we read things into what people say, it's just what we do. That's what they did. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do in the midst of all this noise, all this chaos, all these biases and, and different points of view and yelling and screaming and people wanting him out and people wanting him in, all back and forth, all this stuff. What does Jesus do? He stands up on this last day of this great Jewish feast. 
And he screams out at the top of his lungs. Is anybody thirsty? Through all the noise. Is anybody thirsty? I'm not talking to you Pharisees. I'm not talking to you people who, who want what you want. I'm not talking about all you who just like to stand back and observe and cast stones at everybody. Think, well, they're dumb and they're wrong and that's silly. That's crazy. You know, the, the dwarves are for the dwarves. In the midst of all of those people, is anybody thirsty? If so, come to me and drink. He's not interested in getting caught up in all the chaos. He just says, maybe there's someone in the midst of this crowd that truly is seeking God. He says, come to me, and I can quench your thirst. Now, John doesn't tell us what the response to that was. Here's what I hope happened. Certainly we see this in other circumstances in the Scripture. What I hope happened was there's this little Jewish family who had been faithfully trying to please God, trying to keep the law of God. They're down in Jerusalem from afar, and they, they brought their sacrifices because that's the right thing to do, and they had put together their, their, their tents. Remember, this is the Feast of, of Booths. Not booze. Dwight used to call it the Feast of Booze, but it's not the Feast of Booze. It's the Feast of Booths. They put up tents, makeshift tents to, to stay in and, and have a big feast and a celebration of God's goodness. And, and I just, I would love to think there's this, this little Jewish family that's, that's going through this and they come to the temple and they, they're offering their sacrifices and they know as they see these animals killed, day after day, that they are able to, to connect the dots that the reason these animals have to die is because they are substitutes for us. That God set up the whole sacrificial system to be an illustration that because of sin, people need to die, and God says, I will take the death of this animal in the place of the death of human beings. And that as they're there to worship the one true living God and they're going through the sacrifices and they're pondering God's blessing and grace and kindness, their hearts inside are welling up with a desire an unsatisfied desire for God and for truth and for relationship with him and to hear God say, I forgive you. And then amidst all the noise of all the views of all these people throwing out mindless words, they hear Jesus scream out, are you thirsty? And they say, we are thirsty. And they come to him. And they say, we believe. 
you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You are the one promised for ages upon ages. And Jesus says, I forgive you. I'm going to die and be the ultimate lamb on your behalf. And if those people left this, this feast rejoicing for the rest of their life because now their thirst has been satisfied. I sure hope that happened. I sure hope that happened. How about in this room right now? Jesus is still crying the same thing today. Is anybody thirsty? Cut through all the noise, all the stuff in life, all the opposing opinions about everything, and you just have this yearning, this longing, this, this sense of poverty in your spirit. You know things are not okay with you and God. And you've been trying a lot of different things for that thirst to be quenched. If that's you this morning, Jesus says the same thing. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And he will quench your thirst. That's what he says. In fact, look at the graphic imagery he uses to talk about what it's like when we come and drink says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, that's what it means to come to him, believe in him. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I was going to read to you the scriptures that talk about this. There are many, many, many of them. If you want to look a few of them up, uh, just get out your, uh, your uh, concordance in, or BibleGateway.com and look up water in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 58, 11, Isaiah 55, uh, many, many places in Isaiah. Uh, Nehemiah 9, it's all over the place, this idea of water. And God speaking about water and, and using it as a sign of refreshment and life. But notice what Jesus says. Are you thirsty? He doesn't mean like, um, right now I'm a little bit thirsty, just had a cracker. And whenever we do the Lord's Supper before I preach, I always think, you know, I should do it after I preach because I always have a little cracker, and invariably I get a little piece of that cracker stuck right here, and for the whole sermon I feel like I need to clear it out of there, and I try not to clear my throat constantly because that's disturbing to you, but it's right here, right now. And I'm a little bit thirsty, and I haven't had a drink for 20 minutes. Look, see, my wife is preparing to quench my thirst. Yeah, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and now you all are thirsty, because that's what happens, right? That's not the kind of thirst Jesus is talking about. First of all, we don't know the kind of thirst that he's talking about. And here's what I say that. We have water fountains everywhere. We have water bottles. 
with us all the time. We have those things that we wear on our backs, right? The camelbacks, when we go on long trips, long hikes, whatever. We have plenty of liquid. We have fresh water accessible to us wherever we go. The culture in which Jesus is speaking, these people would travel mile after mile after mile after mile wondering where's the next well or the next fresh water uh, place that I can get a drink. And, and they didn't just have access to water like we do. And they knew what it was like to go a long time without water. So these people understood what it's like to be thirsty way more than we do. And Jesus says, are any of you thirsty? Not talking about drinking water, but is your soul longing for something that God can provide. And notice the graphic imagery he uses to express what will happen if you believe in him. Not just, well, I can satisfy your thirst. That's not what he says. Oh, I can, I can take care of that. Yep, okay, you're not thirsty anymore. He says, out of your, literally, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Do you see the contrast? Before you come to me, you are about to die of thirst. And after you drink me, your gut is going to open up and gush out and flow rivers of living water. That's how full you will be. It's kind of gross, isn't it? I mean, Dan and Eric and I were talking about this, and those guys thought, I would thought maybe if it came out, it would come out this way. I said, I prefer this way. <laughs> Either way, the contrast is stark. You're about to die of thirst? No, 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 not after you come to me. Bursting forth from you, rivers of living water. That is true for everyone who comes to Christ. No more thirst. No more desperate longing for something with God. We have it. Now, John, the writer, fills in a gap for us. He says what Jesus meant by that. Thankfully, it's not literal. No one's going to be shooting water out of their belly. If you do, we're going to have different conversations. He says, this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We know the history. We know the story, right? Down the road a little ways, Jesus dies. He comes back to life. On the day of Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit among all of his people, and from that point forward, every believer is filled with God's Spirit. This happened before all of that. We live after all of that. So, I told you at the very beginning of this study of John that our best guess is this was written around 85 AD. Remember that? This is some 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So John is an old, old man, and he's writing hoping to persuade his Jewish friends that Jesus really is the Messiah. That's his goal. 
and he wants this letter distributed among Jews so they would read it and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he wanted to do. So imagine this. Imagine you're a Jew in AD 85. And someone says, hey, have you read this, this, this letter by this guy, John, who hung out with that Jesus guy? Remember the guy that was crucified 50 years ago? This guy, John, wrote about that. And so you're reading it. You got your little Sabbath day study as Jews, and you're reading John's letter here. And you read this part. Those who believe in Jesus will be filled with the Spirit such that their thirst is quenched and they are, are, have rivers flowing out of them. So you go find a Christian. Hey, Christian, do you have what John was talking about? I mean, do you have rivers of living water flowing out of your belly, metaphorically speaking? How sad would it be if that Christian said, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I'm no different than you are. No! The Christian's going to say, yes, let me tell you what happened when I put my faith in Jesus. God's Spirit indwelled me. He filled me, and here's how I'm different. That's what should happen, right? So let me ask you, 21st century Christian, some Jews reading this, and they come to you and say, can you testify Do you have rivers of living water flowing out of you? Has God's Spirit filled you, or are you still thirsty? Do you realize what Jesus was saying here? It's the same thing he said earlier. Everyone who feeds on me will never hunger again. You're a Christian. That means you're not thirsty. Is it possible for any of us in this room that the Jesus we have come to is the Jesus theologians talk about, politicians talk about, preachers talk about, the world talks about, books talk about, popular opinion talks about. There are all kinds of Jesuses out there. But the one true Jesus, when you come to him, your thirst goes away. And out of you will come rivers of living water. The Spirit of God is so transforming you and filling you, you're not thirsting anymore. The Apostle Paul talks about what that looks like. To the churches in Galatia, he writes that when the Spirit comes upon us, the Spirit begins bearing what he calls fruit. So out of your innermost bellies will come grapes and oranges. No. He says, the fruit of the Spirit are what? What's first? Love. If you are truly a Christian, you've come to Jesus, 
He doesn't say, just go try harder to love. He says, coming out of you will be love. You're not thirsty anymore. You are so full of the Spirit that love pours out. What's the next one? Joy. How often do we as Christians go to every other source there is to find joy? We're down, and we go somewhere out there to find a way to pick me up. Jesus says, if you've come to me, out of your innermost being will flow joy. Doesn't mean we're all happy, clappy all the time. Doesn't mean when things get really difficult, we say, woohoo, thank you, sir, may I have another? But even in the midst of grief and suffering, if you have come to Jesus, you're not thirsting anymore. You are filled with joy even through the midst of great trial. That's why he can say over and over again, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you suffer. Those are not mutually exclusive things. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. If I'm thirsty, it means I haven't actually taken the drink of Jesus. And if I have taken the drink of Jesus, I'm not thirsty, but his spirit is pouring out of me. The question we all need to ask is, do I thirst? And it may be that there are people in this room who've been in the church for decades who say, I'm still thirsty. If so, Jesus says the same thing to you and me that he said to them, come to me and drink. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Don't believe the chaos. Don't listen to the voices out there. What does the Spirit of God say to you right now? Are you thirsty or are you so satisfied you couldn't possibly take another drink? That's the difference between a Christian and not. Let's pray.